Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad to see everyone here this, this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I was talking to a senior adult lady last week and I was telling her that I would be preaching this Sunday. And she said, oh, big church, big church. It's like, yeah. Big church. So here I am. So we just sang, or you just heard, sung uh, a wonderful old hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, and many of you know who the, who the author of that hymn is, John Newton. You know, we're, we're familiar somewhat with his, with his story. Um, but you know, John Newton wasn't always a a follower of Jesus. Um, spent much of his adult life uh, at sea uh, in debauchery and rebellion. Uh, for several years, he worked on a slave ship capturing slaves in Africa to be sold in America. Um, at one point, he became himself a slave, captive to another slave trader. And eventually, he went on to captain his own slave ship. Um, but the combination of a very frightening storm at sea and, and uh, the reading of uh, a book entitled The Imitation of Christ planted the seeds of conversion in his heart. And you know John Newton went on to be uh, in 18th century England, the evangelical movement of 18th century England, up there with John and Charles Wesley and um, George Whitfield and William Wilberforce. And on his tombstone, John Newton um, has written this. Listen to this statement. Put my glasses on. It says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, and that word there, libertine, just means degenerate, as a reprobate. He was a womanizer. It says, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's the story of Acts 9 with Saul. We see here in Acts 9 a man who, who once sought to destroy the church, destroy the influence of the Gospel. But we see God intervening. We see God intervening. You know, Acts 9 gives us the first of three accounts of Saul's... And I'll use the word Saul... Paul interchangeably here, so just FYI. So, uh, the first of three accounts of Saul's conversion here in Acts 9. It also appears in Acts 22 and Acts 26. Um, but Luke here is recording his, in his own words, in his own understanding of the conversion of Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. So, with that in mind, so this is a third-person account. 
The other two are first, persons, uh, pers- first person accounts in Acts 22 and Acts 26. So with that in mind, let's read Acts 9 verses 1 through 31. And I'll try not to commentate as I go along, but I'm not going to guarantee you I'll do that. So I'll try not to. Okay? My wife says I shouldn't. So. so here we go. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. God's Word says this, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. He goes on to say, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name, this name? And, he, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Much like Ananias, right? They didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them 
at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Again, you see a theme here, right? Seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31 is kind of a summation. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for, uh, Lord, us being able to gather together and uh, hear Your Word. Uh, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would teach us today. Uh, Lord, that You would uh, reveal to us what You want us to, to know about Yourself. And Lord, I pray that, uh, again, our hearts will be softened, our ears will be attentive. Lord, not to my words, uh, Father, but to Yours. Uh, that you would receive much, much honor, much glory from what takes place, Lord, in this, this place this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we want to look at an amazing salvation experience by our amazing God. You see the title there, Amazing God, Amazing Gospel, The Salvation of Saul. So our amazing God, it's this salvation is directed toward the most unlikely and unsuspecting of men. And that's Saul. You read there, he's not, he's not looking for God. He's on his way to Damascus. By the way, Damascus is about 135 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. So he's going a long way to do this. That's how committed he is to that purpose and that mission. So he's, he's unsuspecting. You know, th th this person, though, who you would think on the outside would be the godliest of all men. You know, according to man's standards, okay, the godliest of all men. But God exposed him on the road to Damascus as one of the ungodliest men. You're like, well, how do you see that? Well, compared to God's requirement for holiness, right? Because God's standard of holiness and man's standard of holiness don't align. Right? They're not the same. God's requirement to be holy is so much more than we can in and of ourselves achieve. Right? That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the Gospel. So Jesus becomes our holiness. And our position before the Father is, is secured because of Jesus' holiness. His holiness has been applied to our hearts by faith when we believe. And, and that's the only way we're acceptable before the Father. That's the only way. Paul thought he was holy. He thought he was holy and blameless. He says that. You see that in uh, Philippians 3. According to man's standard of holiness, blameless before the law. Righteous. But, like we all are and do, we, we, we fall short of God's standard. Apart from the work of Christ. Apart from the work of Christ on our behalf. So, apart from the work of Christ, applied to our hearts, 
We all fall short. We all fall short. See, our God, He's, he's amazing and His Gospel is amazing. And that's what we see here in the life of this man named Saul who later becomes one of the most in- instrumental individuals in the spread of the Gospel throughout the world. This amazing Gospel. You know, regarding his conversion, many believe this to be the most important event in church history since Pentecost. So Pentecost, Acts 1, Acts 9 now, we see the conversion of of Saul. That this is one of the most important events in church history since Pentecost. You know, this, this militant opponent of Jesus changed, converted by the power of our sovereign God. But you know, Saul was not always a lover of Jesus, as we see here. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a snapshot, if you will, of pre-conversion, pre-Christian Saul. Now, who he, who he was prior to Christ. So you see there that in several verses in Acts and in other places in, in the New Testament and some of the epistles, he's a, he's a fierce enemy of the church. Some of your blanks, I believe, I think. So he's a fierce enemy of the church. Um, you remember he in Acts 7, he's the one who's standing there you know, while Stephen is being stoned. Um, in Acts 8, let me read Acts 8, 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9, 1 and 2, what we just read here. I'll read it again. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we see an individual who's a fierce enemy of the Lord. He is breathing threats. It's like He's like a wild animal. And that's his motivation and his passion here. We'll get to that in just a second. But we also see that, that Paul says in Philippians and in Galatians, in his own epistles there to those particular churches, that he was a persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of the church. Philippians 3, the latter half of Philippians 3, uh, verse 5, verse 6 says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Galatians 1.13 says this, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God, violently and tried to destroy it and tried to destroy it you know this is what makes the conversion of this man so much more to some degree amazing this is what he's doing persecuting violently trying to destroy the church persecuting in the sense of persistent continual intent to harm that's his intent that's his intent He's going to destroy it. Destroy is, that word here is, is, is used of soldiers ravaging a city. Looting, pillaging, destruction. So, so, so Saul is trying his dead level best to do what? To extinguish, to eradicate the church. That's his passion. That's, that's what consumed him. That's what we see here, Right? The total extermination of Christianity. Right? Uh, you also see, and also uh, to go along with that, in Galatians uh, chapter 1, he mentions this 
um, verse 23, they only were hearing it said, and this is Paul speaking of, these folks were speaking of Paul, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So he's trying his dead level best to exterminate the church, the believers there. He's also, another point in there, is that his opposition was the church, and therefore his opposition was to God himself. So the opposition, Saul's opposition was the church, and therefore opposition to God himself. Where do we get that? Well, if you look in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9, he says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So persecution of the church is persecution of Jesus. So you see, Jesus so closely identifies himself and is connected to his bride that any persecution of believers is persecution of himself. You know, we do this with our own family at times. You know, if you hurt one of my kids or my wife, you know, you're hurting me. We're so closely tied together that if you hurt one of us, you're, you're hurting all of us, right? We do that. We feel that hurt deeply. That's what we see here with, with Saul. Now, who's behind all this ultimately? Satan is. Why? Because Satan hates God. It's pretty simple. Uh, he's always behind the work of destruction of God's church. He's always behind the work. Okay? So he hates God, but he can't destroy God. So, so how does he try to destroy Christianity? Well, by eradicating God's people. By destroying God's people. He attempts to crush believers through various means, persecution being one of those. But we see that's what Satan is doing here with, with Saul. Right? When you look at when you look at false religions and false philosophies and ideologies and worldviews in the world today, all of them have a hatred of Christianity deep down. True followers of Christ they they dislike. Why? Because because Satan's behind that. He's behind those cults, false religions, false ideologies of the world. Right? And he's bent on destroying the people of God and using any tactic necessary to do that. See, all cults and false religions have issue with who? With Jesus. They all have an issue with Jesus. You could talk to, you could talk to those folks all day long about God, but when you talk about Jesus, that's when the red flags come up. Because Jesus is at the center and the heart of the Gospel. So when you talk about Jesus, you, you talk about the Gospel and vice versa. You cannot not talk about Jesus when you talk about the Gospel. You have to talk about Christ when you speak of the Gospel. So we see a man who is in opposition of the church, in opposition of God. Ultimately, Satan's behind that. But we also see a man whose life prior to this revelation of the Gospel to him 
He was zealous for the law. You see that in, um, in Philippians 1, verse 3. He's, he, in Galatians 1.14, he talks about being zealous for the traditions of his fathers. So we see a man who is bent on destroying the church. Why? Because he sees these Christians as heretics. That's what he sees them as. They're, they're preaching heresy. They're spreading heresy. So that's a snapshot of this man who we're, we're talking about here in this particular section of Scripture. So how did, how did Paul become a Christian? That's a good question to ask. How did Paul become a Christian? Well, how did you receive the Gospel? Okay. How do you receive the Gospel? Ultimately, this is how we become Christians is through a revelation of Jesus Christ. God reveals Christ to us. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 1.16. Okay. He says this, But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him, Christ, among the Gentiles. So when we talk about these gospel takeaways, I've got three of them. And I've got to hurry. That clock's right there. It's bearing down on me. Gospel revelation. The first one there you see. The gospel revelation brings about gospel transformation. So when Saul received the gospel, it was revealed to him by God. When you and I received the gospel, it was revealed to us by God Himself. Now, in our context, the Spirit of God working in our context, mainly through the Scriptures, in our Western context, through the Scriptures. So God revealed Christ to you, to me, through the, the preaching of His Word, the explanation of His Word. Okay? When, when you see this, this, this revelation of, of the gospel, to the, to the apostle here, who becomes the apostle here. That's an intervention in Paul's life. God intervened in Paul's life. That's what salvation is. is an intervention of God into a person's life. Okay? It's God's work. It comes from Him. He's the author of our faith. Why? Because He receives the glory. Okay? Listen, Paul wasn't seeking God. If you read those verses, he was on his way to Damascus to put Christians in prison. It says this in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Okay? He's not seeking God. He writes about this in Romans 3. I'm going to read this to you. Romans 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says this, Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, bo all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even, not even one. So Paul was called by the grace of God. He was called by the grace of God. There's no merit of Paul in any of this. If you look at Galatians 1.12, I 
I know I'm kind of skipping around here a little bit, but in essence, what he says in Galatians 1.12 is this, I totally got this transformed heart through the revelation of Jesus. Because in Judaism, there's none of that teaching. There's no grace. Okay? There's no, he had no connection to grace prior to his conversion. So here's the, here's the deal. God's able to regenerate the heart of the most improbable of sinners. Listen, there's no human explanation for the conversion of Saul. In fact, there's no human explanation for any true conversion. There's no human explanation. All true conversion is, is miraculous. It's a miracle. It's supernatural, right? It's a supernatural event. So, in salvation only comes through Jesus. That's what we see here. Okay? He's the originator. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith. We see Peter's sermon in Acts 4 talk about this. There's no, there, is, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, Paul brought nothing to his salvation but his what? His sin. He brought his sin. He says that in Ephesians 2. He says, and, we, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. This is who you were. This is who he was. This is who we were. But verse 4 says in Ephesians 2, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is not of your own doing. It goes on further in verse 8. Not of your own doing. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. So when we talk about conversion, and we see this here, there, there must be an encounter with Christ to be saved. Right? Listen to what Gordon T. Smith says about, about this. I'm going to read this little excerpt. He says this, Evangelical Christians are deeply concerned for those who do not know God and have yet to experience conversion through faith and repentance to Christ Jesus. And yet, at their very best, evangelicals have always recognized that people are converted not because they have come to terms with, quote, spiritual laws, but because they experience the transforming grace of God through an encounter with the risen and ascended Christ. Now, God uses many means in which he presents his gospel to us, saves people. It might have been, you know, a VBS, it might have been a, a gospel track, an evangelistic crusade, um, a Christ exalting testimony. Okay? But at the center of them all, listen carefully, there must be an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with Christ at the center of all those things. If you don't encounter Christ, then you don't know Christ. You don't know Christ. Right? You know, Paul said, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. So this revelation that we're talking about is something that was previously secret. He didn't understand the Gospel until it was revealed to him by the Spirit of God. He didn't get it. It was a mystery to him. It was a mystery. He goes on to talk about these things in the New Testament and in the epistles. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6, that's the Scripture on the outside of your bulletin this morning. He says this, For God, who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. God poured out His unmerited love and kindness on Saul. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you can rejoice in this fact. You can rejoice in this fact. That God has poured out His unmerited love and kindness on you. On you. And again, this gives God great pleasure. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ. So there's a revelation of Jesus here. Gospel revelation brings about, leads to transformation. And that's the effect here. That's the effect. What's the effect of revelation of Christ to us and on us? Is that God does something that we can't imagine. He transforms the human heart. He transforms the human heart. It changed Saul's life. There was transformation there. He became a new person. He became a new person. One commentator says this about conversion and becoming new. He says, by conversion, we mean the reorientation of the soul of an individual. His deliberate turning from indifference or an earlier form of piety to another. A turning which implies a consciousness that a great change is involved. That the old was wrong and that the new is right. That's what we see here. The old is gone. The new has come. He says that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're familiar with that verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. So this encounter with Jesus changed his life. Completely transformed him. The Gospel transforms people's lives. That's what the Gospel does. It changes and transforms people's lives. So here's the deal. Do you know people whose hearts and minds are so devoted to their own worldview that they're like Paul prior to his conversion? Do you know someone like that? Who's so devoted? Who, would, who in your mind would be the most unlikely of persons? to come to faith in Christ? Do you pray that God would intervene like He did in Paul's life for that person? Do you pray for those hearts that are hardened that they would encounter Jesus? Encounter the Jesus that we speak of and live out? See, this transformation in Paul's life, he wasn't his own anymore. If you look at verse 15 of that text, it says, now again, the Lord is speaking to Ananias here in verse 15, but he says this, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So he's not his own anymore. Paul's not his own anymore. This transformation sent him on a mission, a new mission, God's mission. So we are followers of Christ, Christians. We are, we're followers of Christ. We as followers of Christ are instruments God uses to carry out His message to the nations. Right? That's who we are. 
we're on, listen, because of this revelation of Jesus, the resulting transformation that, that Saul has, he has a new mission. He has a new mission. This new mission is to make much of Christ wherever he went. You know, the mission and the purpose of Saul prior to this was to what? To destroy the church. Now the mission is to preach Christ. That's a transformation. That's a change. And we need to have this type of mindset. You know, those who God saves, He calls to serve. He calls to serve. To tell. So God uses this in most improbable of sinners as His chosen instrument in the cause of the Gospel. Gospel takeaway two. That was my longest one, so these are a little shorter. So. <laughs> gospel, gospel proclamation or declaration brings about gospel affliction or oppression. I couldn't decide which word to use there, so I used both of them. So, so you see Saul, what does he start doing when this change occurs in his life? He says he starts proclaiming Christ in the synagogues in Damascus, and then when he goes to Jerusalem, he's, he's debating and with the Hellenists there. In Jerusalem, what's he what's he talking about? Well, he's speaking of of this that he he tells us in Second Corinthians five. He says, "For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this that one has died for all; therefore, all have died." He says, "All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself." He says, "Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ; God making His appeal through us." We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what he's doing in these verses here with these individuals, these groups of people, the Jews in Damascus and then the Hellenists in Jerusalem. He's doing it with boldness. He's, he's proclaiming Christ with urgency and immediacy. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. See, when Paul becomes a Christian, Paul became an everyday missionary. He became an everyday missionary. That should sound familiar, right? to us. He became an everyday missionary. So what does is, what is proclamation of the Gospel look like for you and me? Does it look like that? Does it look like boldness? Immediacy? Urgency? Being unashamed? Does it look like that? You may wonder, well, what would I say? What would I say to somebody? Well, speak of Jesus Christ. Show folks from the Bible who Jesus is and what He did by His death and resurrection. See, the fact is that we are to be consistently sharing the message of Christ. The love of Christ, truth, grace, forgiveness with the people around us. spend time with you. If you tell about Christ, if you speak of Jesus, now if you speak of the biblical Jesus, okay, not the one that people have created in their own minds, you're going you're gonna to experience some pushback, some oppression, some hostility. Okay? Paul experienced it. What did they try to do to Paul? Try to kill him. They tried to kill him. Okay? They plotted. They premeditated. That's how offended they were. That's how offended they were. They were trying to permanently shut him up. Okay? They didn't want to hear it. So we need to be prepared 
to live with the expectation of suffering for the Gospel. We need to live with that expectation. Now, it should come of no surprise when you tell those who don't know God that their sin separates them from God, that they are sinners, separates them from a holy God, and without Jesus, they're going to die in their sin and be forever separated from their Creator. You tell people like that, tell people that, it should come no surprise that they're not going to, they're not going to, they're going to take issue with it. There's going to be challenge. There's going to be pushback. You know, let's face it, most folks don't like being told that they're sinners. All right? They're honest. And if they don't repent and trust Christ, that they're going to hell. People don't like that. Especially nowadays. They don't like that. But that's reality. So we need to be prepared to live with the expectation of suffering for the Gospel. Point number three. Gospel takeaway number three. Gospel saturation brings about Gospel growth. Gospel saturation brings about gospel growth. So there's a period of rest. If you read verse 31, it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So when we talk about saturation of the gospel, that's happening here in the first few chapters of Acts as the church is exploding, right? This is, this is what it looks like. The church had peace. Now they had peace on one one effect is because Paul is now a Christian and not a persecutor. Hey. So there's a time of refreshing that occurs here. They're not complacent, but there is a time of peace. It says they were growing spiritually. They, the church was being built up. That's your next blank. They were building one another up in Christ. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord. They were, listen, they were in awe of God Himself. And his power over all. There's a realization with these believers that, that he's the Holy One, the one to be revered, the one to be in awe of. Listen, rest assured, these people weren't flippantly interacting with God. Right? They weren't. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. Since the church was walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was coming alongside of them to help them, to mature them. They were relying on the Holy Spirit as they sought to grow in Christ. And the church expanded, it was growing. The number of believers increased, it multiplied. There was growth numerically. Now, these are, these are, these are descriptive things elements of the church here in the first century. They're descriptive. But I believe there are some prescriptive elements for you and I here at Calvary. Are we, listen, are we walking in the fear of the Lord? Are we walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Um, is, that, is that who we are? Are we building one another up? Are we building one another up? So even though these are descriptive elements of the first century church, they're prescriptive for you and I, I believe as well. So, what's our response? What's our response? 
And I put this in your notes as, as this, and I use the word, and I guess I do have liberty to change it, but our response is we need to know the Scriptures. And I want to change that word need to, we must know. As I was thinking and going through this morning, we must know the Scriptures. We must know the Scriptures. As followers of Christ, we should know the Scriptures. The Scriptures point to who? To Jesus. That's right. To Jesus. So we, we've got to ultimately, that, that's the, the Scriptures point to Jesus. You know, Jesus says that in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with those travelers. He says, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them, all the Scriptures, the things being concerning Himself. John 5.39, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about Me. So to know the Scriptures is to know Christ. So we must know the Scriptures. We must pray. We need to pray. I think that's the way I worded it. But we must pray. How do you pray for those who are lost? Well, you pray for understanding of the Gospel. You pray that the Lord would reveal Jesus to those who you know that don't know Him. You know, 2 Corinthians talks about a veil being, Paul talks about a veil being over the eyes of those who, who don't believe. So the unveiling, pray for that, that God would, un, would, would remove the veil over their eyes so that the truth, the truth, the Gospel of Christ can be received and understood. This veil would be removed. Pray that God in His goodness would show mercy and grace to those who you lift up in prayer for salvation. But in conjunction with prayer for the unbeliever, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Pray to, to your Heavenly Father that, that, that you would live a life that's gospel-saturated. That I would live a life that's gospel-saturated. That we would live a life that's rooted and grounded in the Scriptures. Rooted and grounded in the Scriptures. And pray that, that you live a life that it's demonstrated by love and self-sacrifice. Pray that, that you and I live a life that exudes Jesus. Right? That exudes Jesus. So we, we must pray. And then we, we need to tell, or we must tell. We must declare with our lips the message of Christ. The truth, the grace, the forgiveness. Again, the people you spend time with are your mission field. So who does God want me? So ask yourself, who does God want me to reach or to share the good news of Christ is right where I'm at right now? Okay. Who's in my sphere of influence? That's your mission. The eternal mission. And the last one. We should expect pushback. We should expect pushback. Paul experienced it and so will we. You know, Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Listen, the world is not friendly, buddy-buddy with believers. Just not diametrically opposed to one another. So when you stand, when you and I stand for truth, there'll be pushback. When you stand for the ways of God outlined in His Word, there'll be attacks. There'll be pushback. 
Or there will be pressure to conform to the ideals and the morals of the world. So, we see Paul here. We see this conversion. We see this life of transformation. We see um, proclamation. We see uh, oppression and affliction. And we also see the church growing and gospel-saturated. So, let me ask you this question. That last question on your outline there. Who do you know needs the Gospel? Who do you know needs the Gospel? Who would you say it would take a miracle for them to believe this Gospel? Well, guess what? It is a miracle. It is a miracle. Salvation is a supernatural, miraculous event made possible by God's calling and His revelation of His Son to sinners. So who, does, who do you know that needs the Gospel? Keep praying. Keep praying for those individuals. Keep living out the Gospel in community with those individuals. Okay? So they'll see the love of Christ displayed and in the end, prayerfully, they'll become a believer a new creation, as you display and declare the Gospel, as we do that. But maybe you're here today and you're a Saul. You're hostile to the ways of God. You're hostile to the Gospel. You're hostile to Jesus and His bride. Or you're, you're so pharisaical that you think that you deserve God's salvation that you've done enough good to earn it. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. So if that's you today, at our invitation time, we're about to to go into that. There'll be a few of us down front, and we'll be ready to explain to you how you can become a Christian. How you can know this Christ. See, because God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you're a believer this morning, and you want to pray for someone who you think is the most unlikely to come to faith in Christ, you come. You pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your unmerited kindness and favor to us that You have shown to us Christ. You have given to us Jesus. Lord, we thank You for that. Lord, we pray now that You would Lord, do Your work by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, through Your Word. Lord, that again, if someone does not hear that doesn't, doesn't know You, that they would come to know You. Lord, that they would see You for who You are. And Lord, again, if, if there's believers here who, who have someone in mind who they think will never come to faith in Christ. Encourage them, Lord, through Your Word today. I pray that they've been encouraged through Your Word that 
the most unlikely and improbable of sinners like Saul came to know you. That person can come to know you. I pray that they would be encouraged to keep praying and keep declaring and keep displaying the Gospel, Lord. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time. I pray that it has been pleasing to You and glorifying to You and honoring to You, Lord. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.